Yeah, we're back. We're doing it again. Doing it I'm, again. I'm sleepy. It's you know what? Just guys, just just get get used to it. Just deal with it. Okay. Mm-hmm. These are sleepy time hours for Nathan. This is Nathan's bedtime, and now he's po- and he podcasts during it. There's all sorts of things that that we all have to make sacrifices for, and I podcast when I'm sleepy. Um, man, this we is off the rails. When Nathan needs to nappy nap. Yeah, yeah, we do those things. We do these things. That being said, this is Mark's Madness. We read books. Yes. Um. Uh. But before we read books, sometimes, sometimes we correct ourselves from from the past, and sometimes we we don't so much correct ourselves as as we just addendum ourselves. Yes. And this is a time for David to addendum. So David, I go ahead and addendum. Hard. I was talking about how. Um, it is factually important to realize that Democrats and Republicans are 99% the same, not a hundred, even if it's actually functionally more important to push how they're the same than kind of trying to nuance how they're a little different, especially with all like the harm reduction bullshit narrative that doesn't harm reduction, anything out there anyway. And I was talking about some of the stuff that does make Biden different from Trump. The very, very little things, obviously, you know, I mean, we're talking about keeping, you know, uh, the capital of, of Israel or that the embassy doesn't change the capital uh, of Israel um, unmoved. <laughs> um, and, you know, we're talking about aggression towards China and uh, stepped up aggression at Russia. But one thing that I forgot to mention in the good stuff part is the Keystone XL pipeline, which is huge. Um, it's XL. It's extra large. It's yeah, giant. It's extra large. But it's a huge, you know, this is a huge indigenous struggle. It's a huge struggle. And and Biden's not going to do much against pl- climate change, especially when he's saying every five minutes when people don't even ask. Like that, that meme where people are like, nobody. You know, it should be like, nobody. Yeah. Joe Biden, I'm not going to ban fracking. Like that, that would be the perfect use of that. That would be the real life application of that. Joe Biden is horny for fracking. We He's get it. So horny for it. But he did take away uh, the uh, permits. Permits. That's the word I'm looking for. Thank you. He took away the permits for the Keystone XL, which essentially shuts it down. Not technically. He's not putting, you know, the kaputs on it. He's not shutting down other oil pipelines. He's not working towards decolonization or, or a greater. Um, struggle uh, against climate change, but he is shutting down the permits on the Keystone XL pipeline, which is a huge victory uh, on that on the front of climate and indigenous struggle, uh, which of course are going to be intertwined. Like all of these struggles are intertwined, um, so that's a big one. I also was saying that uh, he was after campaigning that he was going to be no different in Iran against Iran, he was starting to open up like he was going to redo the nuclear deal. Well, apparently he's going to redo the nuclear deal and lighten sanctions conditionally and they're like absurd conditions that no one would ever do. Uh, so he's functionally not changing on Iran. He's he's just throwing out use, useless bullshit language. Um, also, we totally called it on, on the federal prison shit. Um, of course, yeah. he was talking about not only federal prisons, uh, but Shutting down, and we're talking like, I mean, this is maybe affecting out of 2.5 million people, like 30,000 people, which is huge, right? 30,000 lives. Jane. Numbers are numbers. Yeah. They're even, yeah, and that's assuming they're even set free. I mean, we're just talking about not not uh, contracting things out. You know, I mean, these people 
can be sent to public prisons. They're, the private prisons can find another way to profit. It's not necessarily shutting it down. Uh, but no. theoretically, it functionally is a la the permits of the Keystone XL. But there's one big exception. They campaigned on no kids in cages, even though a big yeah, they're not touching that was Obama. Yeah. And, uh, and what's the big condition for the private prisons that aren't getting shut down? Well, the ones that put kids in cages, if it's if it's a Department of Homeland Security prison, which are the concentration camps on the border, the ICE ones that they're throwing families in where they're not intentionally separating kids. They're throwing families in concentration camps together, Nathan, and letting kids get separated naturally in that process because they're humane. So shutting down just a tiny section of what prisons exist, just federal private prisons, so two huge qualifiers. Except the ones that are kids in cages. So the opposite of no kids in cages. Um, but other than that, I, I, I think we were pretty well on the, on the right track. Um, on yeah. Things. So I think those are the only corrections we really need to make there. If, if, if you'd like to hear a list of every single one of the Biden executive orders, uh, feel free to listen to the episode of Dumb and Awful. I did a couple what'll be probably a week or two ago at this point. Just go to Dumb nice. and Awful stream and look for the one I was on. And Brett went through every single one of them. Jesus we, Christ. Yeah. Yeah. That was it was fun. We <laughs> turns out there's not that many good ones. But no, no, there we are. All right. Speaking of which, though, we're going to get into the book Uh, and we're getting the book on the top of page 339. And ladies and gentlemen, Andrew Johnson did not falter. A thing that Andrew Johnson seems to do quite a bit is is falter, but, you know, whatever. Uh, And he began to pin his faith on the fall elections of 1867. Well, he's a popular dude. I'm sure this will go great for him. On September 7th, 1867, Johnson extended full pardon to Confederates. Oh, Oh, that'll make him real popular. Oh, well, that's one way to do it, I guess. Yes. His former proclamation. That is the less popular proclamation. I'll tell you that, guys. That is you hear about (laughs) proclamations. The All the Confederates are Pardoned Proclamation, not as popular. Um, his former proclamation, according to the Tribune, had left about 100,000 citizens outside the amnesty. But this one leaves out just one or 2,000. Oh, we'll find a way to pardon those Nazis yet. Um, undoubtedly, at this time, Johnson was being urged towards stronger counter-revolutionary measures. <laughs> I love Johnson being a counter-revolutionary. That just, yeah, yes, just yes. He entertained the idea of ordering the military governors of the five southern districts to enroll as voters, the former Confederates whom he had included in his last proclamation of amnesty. Clemenceau said that when some of his southern friends called on him, he admitted frankly that only the fear of being deposed prevented him from acting, and he advised them to take the matter into court. Holy cow. So basically, you know, I'm... I got to win this next election. So I'm going to look at these Confederates, you know, these guys that fought a war against the nation and are demanding things like they're the ones that won because they got when they got their asses handed to them. The ones that I ran complete political reputation until this presidency supposedly being opposed to. And I'm going to grant them amnesty explicitly so they could go vote for me. Like, that's what he did. That's fucking goddamn. I mean, it's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it plays out. Uh, the court to the court, the South flew. Johnson's provisional governor of Mississippi tried in the name of his state to enjoin the president from executing the reconstruction laws. The Supreme Court found in April 1867 that its interference would be improper. Thereupon, Governor Jackson of Georgia sought to enjoin the Secretary of War, the General of the Army, and the District Commander in Georgia, but the court decided it had no jurisdiction. 
Thanks, I, Supreme Court, the always progressive force. Thank you, you great, doing... great liberal force of good. Yeah, a thank second you so time, much. <laughs> a second time, Georgia went to the Supreme Court and failed. Finally, late in 1867, W.H. McCardle of Mississippi, arrested by military authority under the Reconstruction Acts, appealed from the circuit to the Supreme Court, but Congress, over the president's veto, repealed the statute which allowed such an appeal, and by this revolutionary procedure made good its supreme power in reconstruction over court and president i just love rogue congress just like (laughs) f you it is definitely like the opposite of what we have right now where we have like rogue executive um now we've just got rogue congress and it's just hilarious to think of like a hundred something people as a rogue body just going off and doing (laughs) radical shit (laughs) that was pretty great it also is interesting because i mean obviously you know the the checks and balances are working the way they're supposed to, right? You have this Congress widely voted in by people across the country who are like, yeah, no, I mean, we got to give black people the right to vote. We won the war. The South's got to pay their debt. Pretty normal things. And then the president and the courts are just like, yeah, no, we're, we're going to do the planter shit. And it takes Congress overriding the checks and balances because they are so overwhelmingly won by the people that are against them and were smart when they played it yeah it's it's going great um radical newspapers published in october a statement that the president had told certain friends in tennessee that he would resist by force if congress attempted to impeach him hmm (laughs) hmm (laughs) hmm doesn't sound familiar at all Johnson denied that he had said anything of the sort, but Republicans made much of the fact that Johnson had ordered cannon furnished to Swan, governor of Maryland, who, like Johnson, had been elected by the Republican and had gone over to the Democrats. Swan now, asked the go- oh, so Johnson was part of the Revolutionary Party. He was leading the counter-revolution. And he was threatening to to take the, the tanks or the tanks at this time was cannons at Congress. We have talked about like Thaddy Daddy being proto Mugabe. Johnson, we might have had him wrong all the time. Johnson's Yeltsin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Johnson can be Yeltsin. Johnson can be Yeltsin. This will work for me. Oh, I don't like that. I don't like that at all. Um, Johnson gave Stanton the order to deliver the weapons needed. Stanton flatly refused. When General Grant took his place as Secretary of War, the governor of Maryland renewed his request, which was again granted by Johnson and again refused by Grant. (laughs) I just love all of this. Just like we want to do. No, shut up. No, stop it. Stop it. <laughs> Finally, Swan made up That's his just mind. Like, Grant, go do this, Grant's like, no. No. <laughs> Have you looked at me? I'm Ulysses S. Grant. I don't take orders from you. <laughs> Finally, Swan made up his mind to buy the cannon. Most of the officers serving in Swan's militia were former Confederates. Well, that doesn't seem to be a conflict of interest. I- no, I. So now we're talking about Grant, not listening to Johnson. I just had this thought in my head that like every time Johnson tries to give him a command, Grant's like drinking contest, and then just <laughs> fucking take shots until one of them hits the floor and it's Johnson. And over you know him. Johnson's a lightweight because you've heard his That's rambling right. speeches. <laughs> During the fall campaign of 1867, there was fear of panic in the air on account of the vast circulation of greenbacks and banknotes. Oh, David, it's coming. It's coming, buddy. It's almost here. It's almost here for you. The extent of a billion dollars. With money fluctuating in value, trade became a lottery. 
<laughs> okay. Higher protection was put on steel and woolen goods, not GameStop. But curiously enough, the Democrats in general avoided the tariff issue. They did not follow Johnson's attack on finance because they saw its inconsistency with the reaction of property in the South. Leaving the economic arguments, they embraced with avidity race prejudice and concentrated their campaign on this. Clemenceau said, the best point of attack for the Democrats is the Negroes. Any Democrat who did not manage to hint in his speech that the Negro is a degenerate gorilla would be considered lacking in enthusiasm. The idea of giving political power to a lot of wild men incapable of civilization whose intelligence is no higher than that of an animal. That is the theme of all Democratic speeches. Which, again, feels very similar to the kind of rhetoric you heard drummed up at the end Um all the, the Trump style Republicans, those, you know, that that really ratcheting it up in this last campaign of, no, we're going all in on the racism. We're just pushing it, pushing our chips across the table. Yeah, it's, I mean, cause that, nothing is more American than in politics when you want the support of people whose interest you are not remotely serving. You just go, mm-hmm. hey. How about some racism? And they go, woo, and party on with you. <laughs> it's also great. Sorry, I should have finished this last sentence because it makes it even better. With this, of course, went fetish worship of the Constitution. So it's exactly <laughs> like the Trump speeches in this last batch. Exactly like it. Oh, thank you, Dr. Oh. Du Bois. Thank you, as always. <laughs> Johnson looked forward with hope. October elections took place in Ohio and Pennsylvania and showed reaction toward the Democrats. In Ohio, Rutherford B. Hayes, afterward president, ran against Alan G. Thurman, and Negro suffrage played a large part. Hayes denied the assertion that the government was a white man's government. It is not the government of any class or sect or nationality or race. It is not the government of the native-born or the foreign-born, of the rich or the poor, of the white or of the colored man. It is the government of the free man. The, The monstrous inconsistency and injustice of excluding one-seventh of our population from all participation in government founded on the consent of the governed was held to be impossible. There was no necessary antagonism between the two races which could not be broken down by justice and equality. Hayes won by less than 3,000 votes as compared with a Republican majority of 42,000 in 1866. Also at the time, the voters rejected the Negro suffrage amendment by 38,000 votes and elected a Democratic legislature. There were, however, certain other elements. The Republicans had sought to disenfranchise deserters from the army, and Ben Wade had aroused the bitter hostility of Southern elements in Southern Ohio. David, take it away. Ohio expressed itself against the high tariff to fill the pockets of Eastern monopolists. See, now that's the other thing, too. It's not like there are not corporate elites, but when your racism is waning, you just point at the corporate elites and go, it's... It's them people, and without the class analysis, you're supposed to like couple that to to the marginalized yeah. groups, you know. Coastal and, and them, them damn coastal elites. That's right. Nothing, nothing takes down billionaires like like bigotry. That's we've learned. I mean, historically, right? You know, wealth hates yeah. hates bigotry, right? Definitely yeah. didn't create it and uphold it at every turn. Uh, yeah. But th- again, that that's how American politics work. Um, and in favor of agricultural labor, showing the peculiar contradiction in the minds of the voters, Johnson telegraphed Ohio. Ohio has done its duty and done it in time. God bless Ohio. Pennsylvania lost nearly the whole of its Republican majority for, of 30,000. In New York, cannon were kept firing for two days. Really? 
I why they were firing cannons during the election i don't know why uh, just seems like a weird sentence I know that's what kind of took me back. Most of the state elections came in November and showed some reaction toward the Democrats, but not so great as in October. The Republicans won in Massachusetts, Michigan, Wisconsin, Kansas, Minnesota, Missouri, and Illinois, but were completely defeated in New York, New Jersey, and Maryland. Weird how hmm. the places with these coastal elites is is where they lost. That's weird. Yeah, hmm. it's it's that that is an interesting. That is an interesting dichotomy, though, to see the Republic. Like, yeah, you get like if you said now, if you knew the parties were flipped the way they were saying that yeah. Democrats win New York, New Jersey, Maryland and Republicans win the states that they just listed there, sort of Massachusetts, um, that would make sense. But it is very strange to see that the, the yeah, radical, the radical like- group, uh, it, you know, pushing for enfranchisement of of uh black people in this country was winning in the middle of the country and losing in new york new jersey and maryland i guess that goes back to that it's not just a north and south battle it's the monopolists have a very uh not monopolists that's that's a weird term i guess some of it's not crazy you got massachusetts michigan and wisconsin are, are even pretty 50 50 now and I guess more so Michigan than Wisconsin. Uh, and you got Minnesota that's a little 50-50 there, too. But, I mean, you got Kansas. You got Missouri. Uh, this is pre-Kansas' absurd you know, um, population compared to the rest of the Midwest. Um, and you had Illinois. That's, yeah, it's, it's very different from now. It's interesting. Yep. Uh, New Jersey refused to strike out the word white from the requirements for suffrage. In New York, the Republicans did not dare to submit to popular vote the proposal to drop the property discrimination against Negro voters. I see already in the works of the way you discriminate against black people doesn't have to explicitly say race. You just no. you just make them super poor and then you make laws that implicitly attack poverty weird how that keeps working in this system uh maryland adopted really a new red yeah maryland adopted the new registry law which gave the vote to whites only on the other hand during 1867 iowa and dakota admitted negroes on the ballots and minnesota in 1868 in this latter year negroes were voting in all new england states except connecticut in iowa minnesota and dakota and a total of eight northern states. The South and its friends had the right to charge that eight other nations st- northern states refused to enfranchise a class to which they were forcing the South to give the vote. <laughs> Again, boohoo, you lost. There, there, yeah, get over it. Like you're not wrong, but that's on those other states to fix it, not on you to get out of it and keep being. The other like, states racist. didn't do a whole coup thing that proved like you threw a hissy fit and threw your little temper tantrum. So yes, you have to be treated like a baby right now. <laughs> Did you poo poo in your you poo poo in your diaper? Yeah, we're gonna tell you what to do for a little while. <laughs> the other states up there are idiots, but they're idiots that didn't go poo poo in their pants in the middle of the the whole thing and make a make a scene out of the whole thing, wiping it on the walls. You, you animals. In the third annual message of Andrew Johnson, December 3rd, 1867, all masking of the Negro problem is removed. He is no longer evasive, as is the relation of the black worker to the white worker, and his whole economic argument is drowned in race hate. There is no suggestion that Negro soldiers and Negro property owners, or Negroes who can read and write, should have any political rights. He bases his whole argument flatly on the inferiority of the Negro race. And here, oh here, guys, this is about to get this quote. is about to get real bad, guys. So just yes. just bear so, with it. It's about to so, get real bad. It is the glory of white men. It did not start off good. He proclaimed. I told you. 
mag- magniloquently, I guess it's a word, yep. uh, to know that they have had these qualities in sufficient measure to build upon this continent a great political fabric and to preserve its stability for more than 90 years, while in every other part of the world all similar experiments have failed. But if anything can be proved by known facts, if all reasoning upon evidence is not abandoned, it must be acknowledged that in the progress of nations, Negroes have shown less capacity for government than any other race of people. No independent Get the calipers gov- out! That's right. No independent government of any form has ever been successful in their own hands. On the contrary, wherever they have been left to their own devices, they have shown a constant tendency for relapse into barbarism. And the southern states, however, Congress has undertaken to confer upon them the privilege of the ballot. Just released from slavery, it may be doubted whether, uh, as a class, they know more than their ancestors how to organize and regulate civil society. Indeed, it is admitted that the blacks of the South are not only regardless of the rights of property, but so utterly ignorant of public affairs that their voting can consist in nothing more than carrying a ballot to the place where they are directed to deposit it. It's not getting any better this next paragraph. Mm -hmm. The great difference between the two races in physical, mental, and moral characteristics will prevent amalgamation or fusion of them together in one homogenous mass. If the inferior obtains the ascendancy over the other, it will govern govern with reference only to its own interests for it will recognize no common interest and create such a tyranny as the continent had never yet witnessed the continent had definitely never witnessed one no, race a tyranny of one over race over race the other regardless of their common interests maybe oh no oh no, no weird i'm so so i'm so concerned weird back to the hell quote already the negroes are influenced by promises of confiscation and plunder they are taught to regard as an enemy every white man who has any respect for the rights of his own race oh god he is like so close to saying the 14 words like he is desperately trying to say it i mean he just basically said like you know white genocide or or white is okay or whatever the fuck in that last sentence yeah if this continues it must become worse and worse until all order would be subverted all industry cease and the fertile fields of the south grow up into wilderness if if black people aren't subservient to white people all of society will forever collapse um of all the dangers for which our nation has yet encountered none are equal to those which must result from the success of the effort now making to africanize half of our country that's a nasty word that wasn't necessary like, and thank god no, that's go the ahead. end of the quote thank god it is the end of the quote i like to think <laughs> I like to think that at some point we will look back on all the arguments against socialism and against communism and against, you know, progressive ideology in general. Mm -hmm. And we will be able to look at it as just horrendously cringe as that last paragraph was. It's one of my few utopian hopes that I have in my heart any day of the week is, is that someday I'll be able to cringe when they tell us that it's fanciful and that it fails everywhere you try it and all that other stuff like that. But good God. I'm that was the material conditions we read that kind of paragraph historically in will actually keep up with how much we're we're internally cringing at that that sentence. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. What's spoken in there more? Yeah. No, I don't want it to match that. I want it. I just I just want to get to a point where we can look back and go, that's dumb. Because <laughs> holy cow, that was just a big pile of racist 
yeah. a president said that. Yeah. A president said that. Like yeah. y'all hold that office in any regard? Like, come on. Yeah. <sighs> and the current and last president don't really speak that much differently about it. Not they just, that much different. Not that they, much different. They're they're better they at coding. Of, they're better at coding it. I was gonna say they kinda half code it, I'm sure probably only in public. And that that's about it. You know, one made his hay. 40 years ago, screaming against busing and, and, and desegregation. And, and then, you know, 30 years ago, wrote the crime bill. And even in his campaign said something about like, uh, uh, what was it? It was, um, <sighs> poor oh kids are just poor as smart kids. as white That's kids. Poor kids. Poor kids are just as smart as white kids. Like fucking yep. Jesus. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And the other one took out a full page ad against the central park five. Yes. So, I mean, come on now. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> oh well david take take a break from the hellscape uh i'll i'll, I'll tag in for a moment it okay. is easy to believe now that the idea that andrew johnson in the south planned a coup d'etat was fanciful the point is again back to failed presidents getting impeached planning coup d'etats guys t- time's a flat circle the point <laughs> is that sane and thoughtful men at the time widely believed it no matter how incredible it may seem to us, we must remember that this was a generation to which it had seemed incredible that the South should secede. They had been in, they had seen the incredible happen at fearful cost. It might happen again. The Republicans, therefore, refer, refused to be frightened by the election of 1867. As friend of the show, Carl Schurz said, I think that I do not exaggerate that the overwhelming majority of the loyal Union men, North and South, saw in President Johnson a traitor bent upon turning over the national government to the rebels again and ardently wishing to see him stripped utterly of power. Not so much for what he had done, but for what, as they thought, he was capable of doing and likely to do. Impeachment proceedings now hurried forward. Again, God, guys, it just, it's, it's the same. It's all the same. Why is time so dumb? <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Impeachment proceedings now hurried forward. They had begun in December 1866. On February 28, 1867, the committee. How is that hurried forward? That was like three months. What were you all doing? <laughs> the committee on judiciary had refused to recommend impeachment of the president, but asked for further investigation. You have March so s- much faith in the efficiency of American government that you think three no, months isn't hurried forward. I have no faith in it, but they, they say they hurried forward. And then they're like three months later, March 2nd, the reconstruction act passed and March 7th impeachment was moved for the second time in the house. Johnson had notified the Senate of the suspension of the secretary Stanton in December, 1867. Early the next year, the Senate refused to concur. Grant gave up the office and Stanton resumed his duties. Stanton was dismissed again in February, 1868 and the impeachment of Johnson was determined upon in March. The beginning of the attempt to impeach President Johnson was a memorable scene. Thaddeus Stevens made his speech February 16th, 1868. He was hopelessly broken in health and hushed in an, an, and a hush and expectant audience listened to every word. He spoke with force and solemnity. I doubt, said Charles Sumner, if words were ever delivered to more effect. He was a dying man and this was his last word. If when guys, if that daddy dies, I'm ending the episode. Just I'm just telling you right now. I I will curl. I don't care that the man is dead and I know he dies. If this happens to me, I will I will cry. That's that's true, but at some point we we've all got to, you know, leave this mortal coil. And if your last public act is standing in front of hundreds of people with immense political influence and saying, fuck Andrew Johnson and moving them with you, that's going out on top. <sighs> All right. I'm just saying 
I will not be a happy camper if this happens. This man has been the only thing that has made this book uh, a joyful spot for me in most of the time. He has been my one bright shining light that gets me through. If you take that shining light away with 300 pages to go, I'm I'm, I'm going to lose faith. Um, who? Sir, all right. Who in 1867 represented the considered will of the people of the United States? Certainly not Andrew Johnson, backed by northern copperheads and the supporters of a futile attempt at secession. Just as certainly two-thirds of the members of Congress with the South excluded as it had been excluded for six terrible years had a clear right to express the repeatedly registered popular will. The problem was a difficult one. When can a ruler in the United States when can a ruler rule in the United States? The nation by overwhelming majority had declared for union, for emancipation, to preserve the union, for no increase in the political power of the white South, and for Negro suffrage to prevent this increased political power and reward Negro loyalty. This clear will of the majority of the people represented in Congress was frustrated by a president who repeatedly refused to obey the plain mandate of the party which elected him. Johnson virtually declared Congress illegal because the South was unrepresented. Congress claimed Congress denied that a criminal could be his own judge. Who could settle this dispute? By the whole theory of party government, a president must be at least in general accord with his party. His utmost power should not go beyond a super, uh, suspensory veto compelling a plebiscite. Yet no president in the history of the United States up to this time had used the veto power like Andrew Johnson to oppose the expressed will of the nation. In 23 cases, he opposed his will to the will of Congress, while Andrew Jackson, his closest competitor, made only 11 vetoes and pocket vetoes. A, a great a great group to be in, Andrew yeah. Jackson and Andrew Johnson. That's the part you want. <laughs> Those are the two you want to party with. Party responsibility in government was absolutely blocked at a time of crisis. Under any even partial theory of such responsibility, Johnson would have been compelled to resign. But the antiquita- antiquitated... Antiquated, Antiquated. good God, (laughs) I got there. Constitutional requirements of a system of laws built for another age and for entirely different circumstances were now being applied to unforeseen circumstances. I wonder what that would be like. (sighs) The Constitution made the removal of the president contingent upon his committing high crimes and misdemeanors. Here then came a plain question of definition. Was it a crime in the judgment of the people of the United States in 1867 for a president to block the overwhelming will of a successful majority of voters during a period of overwhelming uh, during a period of nearly three years? Yes, I, I have a question. I so like because we're asking a plain question of definition, and yet we're talking about high crimes and misdemeanors. And I thought like misdemeanors and high crimes were two different things. What the hell is going on here? Uh, the people that wrote the bill wrote it in the 1700s and, uh, things have changed. Misdemeanors were basically execution then. I don't even know anymore. They did not all pretend that Johnson was personally a criminal with treasonable designs, although some believed even that. On the other hand, it was clear even to many of Johnson's friends that he was an unfit person to be the president of the United States. They all did assert that he had broken the rules by which responsible government could be carried on. The trial started March 30th, 1868 and ended May 6th. Over two thirds of the members of the United States House of Representatives, 35 out of 54 senators and the great majority of the voters of the nation outside the former slave states agreed that Johnson should be removed from office. Whether they were right or wrong, the failure legally to convict Johnson has remained to frustrate responsible government in the United States ever since. Yep. No precedent set there. 
<laughs> but no president since Johnson has attempted indefinitely to rule in defiance of Congress. <laughs> that's cute he wrote this a long time ago the, the leaders of abolition democracy still pressed on sumner was especially active and destined for several more years of active work thaddeus stevens was near death no you don't but to the very end he fought on he wished to ask congress to declare by law that no state had the right to forbid citizens of the united states from taking part in the national elections thaddeus stevens died <laughs> God damn it, David Reed, I'm mad. All right. Thaddeus Stevens died August 11th, 1868, three weeks after the ratification of the 14th Amendment was announced, and in his last breath, and even after death, stood true to his principles. Two colored clergymen called and asked to leave to see Stevens and pray with him. He ordered them to be admitted, and when they had come to his bedside, he turned and held out his hand to one of them. They sang a hymn and prayed. It was then within 10 minutes of midnight, and the end was to come before the beginning of the new day. He lay motionless for a few minutes, then opened his eyes, took one look, placidly closed them, and without a struggle, the great commoner had ceased to breathe. Thaddeus Stevens was buried in a colored graveyard. Upon the monument there is the following inscription prepared by himself. I repose in this quiet and secluded spot, not from any natural preference for solitude, but finding other cemeteries limited as to race by charter rules. I have chosen this that I might illustrate in my death the principles which I advocated through a long life, the equality of the man before his creator. That man really uh, did go out on top. He did, but he, did. he didn't get to see any of the The 14th Amendment fruits. came three weeks first. I, they just said that. I, That's good. He saw the 14th Amendment. I am so sad, guys. I'm just so <laughs> sad now. As Charles Sumner said, already he takes his place among illustrious names, which are the common property of mankind. I see him now as I have so often seen him during his life. His venerable form moves slowly and with cer- uncertain steps, but the gathered strength of years is his countenance and the light of victory on his path. Politician, calculator, time server, stand aside. A hero statesman passes to his reward. As a result of the legislation of the 39th and 40th Congress, the United States in 1867 took a portentous forward step in democracy. For the mass of the nation, it was a step taken under compulsion of fear, without deep forethought, and with a rather didactic following out of certain convention principles which had made universal suffrage seem natural and inevitable. To the South, it was the price of that disaster of slavery and war which spelled its history from 1830 to 1865, and it was the only price adequate for that fatal mistake. To those men who were guiding American industry toward a new and faithful path, the Southern experiment was simply a political move by which they silenced and held in check the tremendous political power built on slavery, which in many ways and for a generation had threatened the nation and checked its economic development. To a few far-seeing leaders of democracy, this experiment appeared in its truer light, 
It was a test of the whole theory of American government. It was a dictatorship backed by the military arm of the United States, by which governments of southern states were to be coerced into accepting a new form of administration, in which the freedmen and the poor whites were to hold the overwhelming balance of power. As soon as political power was successfully delivered into the hands of these elements, the federal government was to withdraw and full democracy ensue. Now, see, I don't like that pathway, though. Like, okay, so, you know, we give them the right to vote, and I get that part of the compromise that the military dictatorship goes away, but then the military dictatorship goes away, and obviously the problems were still fomenting. So, well, yeah, I mean, and we have the benefit of hindsight knowing how exactly this is going to go, but it's, I mean, it was so, I, I would, I would have to think it was so clearly painted on the walls that the second that, that you're not going to quell that level of racial tension and hatred overnight that you need that that for you need something to keep yep. this in check and and we know exactly where this is going to go it's going to go right to jim crow and it's going to go right to everything that 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 leads up to the civil rights movement yeah absolutely um the difficulty with this theory was the failure to realize that such dictatorship must last well <laughs> again just let du bois talk god damn it david <laughs> must last long enough really to put the mass of workers in power that this would be in fact the dictatorship of the proletariat which must endure <gasps> until the proletariat or at least a leading united group with clear objects and effective method had education and experience and had taken firm control of the organ economic organization of the south unfortunately the power set to begin this dictatorship was the military arm of a government which more and more was falling into the hands of organized wealth and wealth and of wealth organized on a scale never before seen in modern civilization du bois dropping dop just like like just casually just like no big deal Yes. Also, I'll throw just out a dictatorship of the proletariat. The, the amazing side of like you know, <laughs> this is the ultimate, the uber bourgeoisie, right? This is the wealthiest yeah. group of people humanity seen. It's laughable to think that you're going to institute a dictatorship of the proletariat using the military arm that is explicitly there to enforce imperialism and you know capitalist yeah. hegemony across the world. Like, yeah, that seems exactly silly what on its face. Exactly what Du Bois is 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 alluding to, but it's exactly you know what needed to happen. Yeah, it needed to happen, but it needed to happen. It, it couldn't happen the way things were unfolding. It had to no. happen with it, th- people like Stevens, people like Sumner. Um, there needed to be more of them, and there wasn't. An, there just wasn't enough momentum to make it happen. It didn't exist. Yeah, and, um, and it was never going to exist. I mean, even with all the supporters I had, the, the, it was going to be limited from the settler colonial structure. And we could see that in the checks and balances. We could see that in the rising, you know, wealth and, and the industrialists of the North and the expansionists of the West. Um, you know, genociding more indigenous people as they expanded West, um, and of course the Southern planters and all the vestiges. Vest- vestiges of power at any region is never the masses never the population um and so i mean and that's what we talked about before right you know we talked about that the uh the freedmen's bureau is is the closest thing america's ever had to a dictatorship of the proletariat and you can't have a dictatorship of proletariat as part of a dictatorship of bourgeoisie a state is one thing or the other exactly and and the character of this state did not ever ever come close to reflecting a dictatorship of the proletariat it was always a few people there was a small i would say if anything you had a small faction 
within the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie fighting to try and create a semblance of the dictatorship of the proletariat, but they were a very much an insurgent force and they were not a majority and they never were able to constitute one. Yeah. And whether it's, whether it's the insurgency of the abolitionists um, among the Republicans Mm -hmm. and the people running the Freedmen's Bureau or or the insurgency that led to that in Northern victory in the first place of the freedmen taking up arms and fighting for the North, it was always, Mm -hmm. you know, an insurgency that had seized the opportunity of civil war and seized the opportunity of of power collapse and contradictions coming to a head uh but unfortunately that that opportunity seizure never came to full power and never came to full fruition because it didn't topple the government because the nature of you know the confederacy meant that fighting for that insurgency and fighting you know for abolitionism was fighting against this reactionary south and defeating them essentially with with the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie that that's that's all it was you know i mean it's kind of like kind of like in germany after world war ii right i mean germany itself was freed and and east germany was able to exist uh because of the soviets and the partisans on the eastern front coming through but they had to make a partnership with with other, you know, these imperialist nations who were on the side of fascism in Great Britain and the United States. And so then they had to divvy up Germany and West Germany never saw the power change. It went right back into the hands of, of the Nazis. They just dressed themselves up like good liberal boys. Um, and, and <laughs> that's, you know, where we got West Germany versus East Germany from. I mean, it's, it's the same thing, except it was the totality of the nation because there wasn't like a, a black Soviet Union on the other side. Haiti wasn't that powerful. Man, I wish. God, come on. Yeah. Don't taunt me like that. <laughs> the new organization of Northern wealth was not comparable to the petty bourgeoisie, which seized power after the overthrow of European feudalism. It was a new rule of associated and federated monarchs of industry and finance wielding a vaster and more despotic power than European kings and nobles ever held. It was destined to subdue not simply Southern agrarianism, but even individual wealth and brains in the North, which were creating a new petty bourgeoisie of small merchants and skilled artisans. It was inconceivable, therefore, that the masters of Northern industry, through their growing control of American government, were going to allow the laborers of the South any more real control of wealth and industry than was necessary to curb the political power of planters and their successors. As soon as the Southern landowners and merchants yielded to the Northern demands of a plutocracy, at that moment, the military dictatorship should be withdrawn and a dictatorship of capital allowed unhampered sway. See, that's what it was. They just needed to control it. They needed to get it into a state where it could be molded and manipulated the way that that Northern capital kind of wanted it to be. And that, that's why I was comparing it to, to West Germany before, right? I mean, it, it was the same thing, right? The fascist reaction was not something they were ideologically opposed to. They, they just had to, you know, temper it down. They had to control it, right? It was getting out of line. And yeah. as soon as it's back in line, you know, I mean, again, you see the same thing with the, the war on terror, right? Is, uh, you know, Al Qaeda and, and ISIS and these factions, the U.S. isn't opposed to them. The U.S. helped empower them to topple, you know, socialists and leftists and any, any government that nationalizes its natural resources in west asia but as soon as as soon as it's back in control it's got to be there and then the fact that it continues to work as a threat right you got to empower me to stop this threat is just an extra advantage but the point is just checking that is just not letting that get so powerful and angry and selfish that it comes after you too right you gotta you gotta let the kids play but but they can't they can't sit at the grown-up table that's the only important thing for sure 
We see this more clearly than today than the nation of 1868 or any of its leaders could possibly envisage it. But even then, Northern industry knew that universal suffrage in the South in the hands of the Negroes just freed from slavery and of white people still enslaved of poverty could not stand against organized industry. They promptly calculated that the same method of controlling the labor vote would come in vogue in the South as they were already using it in the North, and that the industry which used these methods must in the meantime cooperate with Northern industry, that it could not move the foundation stones upon which Northern industry was consolidating its power. That is the tariff. The money system, the debt, and that and national in place of state control of industry. This would seem to be what the masters of exploitation were counting upon, and it certainly came true in the bargain of 1876. Thus, by singular coincidence, and for a moment, for the few years of an eternal second in the cycle of a thousand years, the orbits of two widely and utterly dissimilar economic systems coincided, and the result was a revolution so vast and portentous that few minds ever fully conceived it. For the systems were the three, were these. First, that a dem- of a democracy which should, by universal suffrage, establish a dictatorship of the proletariat, ending in industrial democracy. And the other, a system by which a little knot of masterful men would so organize capitalism as to bring under their control the natural resources, wealth, in and industry of a vast and rich country, and through that of the world. For a second, for a pulse of time, these orbits crossed and coincided, but their central suns were a thousand light years apart, even though the blind and ignorant fury of the South and the complacent Philistinism of the North saw them as one. Reconstruction was an econ... Oh, no, you got some? Oh, no, I was just... I was going to take over reading. You've been reading for a while. Oh, yeah, go for it. fire away. Okay. Reconstruction was an economic revolution on a mighty scale and with worldwide reverberation. Reconstruction was not simply a fight between the white and black races in the South or between master and ex-slave. It was much more subtle. It involved more than this. There have been repeated and continued attempts to paint this era as an interlude of petty politics or nightmare of race hate. Instead of viewing it slowly and broadly as a tremendous series of efforts to earn a living in a new and untried ways to achieve economic security and to restore fatal losses of capital and investment. It was a vast labor movement of ignorant, earnest, and bewildered black men whose faces had been ground in the mud by their three awful centuries of degradation and who now staggered forward blindly in blood and tears amid petty division, hate, and hurt, and surrounded by every disaster of war and industrial upheaval. Reconstruction was a vast labor movement of ignorant, muddled, and bewildered white men who had been disinherited of land and labor and fought a long battle with sheer subsistence, hanging on the edge of poverty, eating clay, and chasing slaves, and now lurching up to manhood. Reconstruction was the turn of white northern migration southward to new and sudden economic opportunity, which followed the disaster and dislocation of war and an attempt to organize capital labor and on a new pattern and build a new economy. Finally, Reconstruction was a desperate effort of dislodged, maimed, impoverished, and ruined oligarchy and a monopoly to restore an anachronism and economic organization by force, fraud, and slander. In defiance of law and order, and in the face of a great labor movement of white and black, and in bitter strife with a new capitalism and a new political framework. And so that's 
that's an interesting take on it, right? Because capitalism, we always think of it. And of course, this was the robber baron day. So capitalism was not, you know, budding in, in America, but it was really defining itself as, as a world force. And of course, we talked about capitalism as a force in general grew out of the cotton plantations of the South. And that allowed the industrialization of the North, industrialization of, of Europe, you know, England and, and, France and later on Germany, um, it all come. I mean, there, there's a reason that the, the first examples that Marx uses in Capital, uh, it may be coincidental, but it's not shocking that at least his mind goes there. I mean, we've talked about even, even you know, your natural thoughts are, are a, a uh, uh, material condition or result of material conditions uh, that we're talking about linen and threads and coats. Right, I mean, cotton don't really launched bring up capitalism. the linen and threads and coats again. <laughs> don't not no. Gosh darn it, I'm past those. <laughs> but there's Thought three we more were... chapters on it, Nathan. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> we're gonna M prime this shit now. Uh, but anyway, I, um, I will slap you if you bring M prime <laughs> back into this. Um, but you know, I mean, the cotton plantations marked the whole, you know, world economy that that allowed capitalism to flourish and allowed industrialization to flourish was was a big thing. Was was cash crops of cotton and sugar and and things like that from you know slave labor all over the Americas. Um, and so now you have this capitalism that had grown out of it, and all of a sudden it's getting robbed of this this free you know resource extraction but it has to be because it's coming into conflict and so how does it evolve past it and you're either going to see the entire system crap out and collapse and and the end of slavery rise up and then god knows where things go economically or you see what happened where the industrialists just you know rise and and suck up power right and then essentially enforce their will um, economically and and expand their industries, and so it was a huge transition period in in world economics. And I think this is going to be a good lead in to what probably ends Reconstruction, of course, <laughs> when we get there. Since he alluded to it, and so we'll probably see when we get to the part where he mentions it more in depth what Du Bois has to say about the first Great Depression. Uh, and, and what it has to do with it. <laughs> David's favorite topic to foreshadow in the history of this show. Holy cow. <laughs> in the meantime, yet with interpretation, agreement was possible here. North and South agreed that laborers must produce profit. The poor white and the Negro wanted to get the profit arising from the laborers' toil and not to divide it with the employers and landowners. When northern and southern employers agreed that profit was most important and the method of getting it second, the path to understanding was clear. When the white laborers were convinced that the degradation of Negro labor was more fundamental than the uplift of white labor, the end was in sight. And that's, I mean, that's very clear about what has happened in, in America. And again, you know... <laughs> You can have individuals in these groups that, that don't – this is talking about the actions of the classes of, as a whole because that's what matters. Um, yeah. Not only did all of these factors becloud this extraordinary series of movements so that the truth of the matter in and of itself was baffling to observers and interpreters, but overall has spread to this day a cloud of lying and slander, which leaves historians and philosophers aghast and has resulted in a current theory of interpretation which pictures all participants as scoundrels, idiots, and heroes, a combination hu humanly improbable and demonstrably untrue. 
Uh, one cannot study Reconstruction without first frankly facing the facts of universal lying, of deliberate and unbounded attempts to prove case and win a dispute and preserve economic mastery and political domination by besmirching the character, motives, and common sense of every single person who dared disagree with the dominant philosophy of the white South. The campaign of slander against carpetbaggers, one of my favorite terms of all time, rose to a climax, which included every northern person who defended the Negro and every northern person in the South who was connected with the Army or Freedmen's Bureau or with the institutions of learning or who admitted the right of the Negro to vote or defend him in any way. It was the general, almost universal belief that practically without exception, these people were liars, jailbirds, criminals, and thieves, and the hatred of them rose to a crescendo of curses and filth. Later, this universal attack upon the carpetbaggers was modified considerably, and it was admitted that there were among them some decent and high-minded men, although most of them were still regarded as selfish stealers of public funds. They're not bringing their best liars, murderers, and of course, there's probably some good people back. <laughs> you know, it, it's there. Yeah, yeah. And, and this is something, too. Okay, so we always got to draw these modern-day parallels. Um but this actually kind of reminds me a little bit of the the, the, the term tanky, right? You know, I mean, carpetbaggers <laughs> started with the very specific definition, like people from the north who came down to seek labor opportunities, right? And from its inception, that insidiousness that that you know, because it, it was it wasn't even necessarily if people coming down from the north was good or bad, like it portends to put on it was the fact that northerners might sympathize with the freedmen and so it was derogatory because you might think black people are human because you're from the the north and so it was always racist from its inception and of course because of that it expanded to anyone that sympathized with black people at all right yeah and and you see the same thing with the the term tanky you know supposedly it was anyone who would unapologetically support the ussr as they rolled in tanks on hungary uh against a fascist uprising right and it's not a question of like is rolling in tanks on on your own people the you know the right way to handle it is that too authoritarian or or whatever like like they want to say it is it was always from the start just an anti-communist pejorative just anyone who's not serving the needs of the west um from supposed western communists and of course you know from there it expands to anyone who pretend portends himself to be some kind of you know leftist it, that that you know of course does everything that the western empire wants or says everything the western empire wants just slams anyone who doesn't anyone who defends any actually existing socialism or even non-socialist but official western enemy nations and you know so this this was the the essentially progenerate well not progenerator but but uh, that, that assumes one drew from the other but this was the first iteration of that because the first iteration of everything in america is racism and this has been Tanky Talk with David. Uh, that being said, this has also been Mark's Madness, and we're going to end it there for the week because we're getting ready to transition. Also, it's been enough time. You've gotten your free free amount. You've you've filled up at the the free content factory. I don't know where this bit was going, but it was it was going somewhere. <laughs> I've I've lost the track a little bit, but this has in fact been Mark's Madness. Um, we read books. And if you would like to talk to us about the books that we are reading or, or just anything else that's on your mind, there are some ways you can do that. 
Uh, first way to do that would be to send us an email. MarksMadnessPod at gmail.com is the email address that we use. Um, if you would like to send us something on the Hell app with the Twitters and the Bird and the Bad Times, um, you can do that. It's at MarksMadnessPod. DMs are open. Uh, timeline's there. Um, I'm trying to limit my use of that app as much as humanly possible because why wouldn't I? Because good God, it's, it's just, it's just bad, people. It's just so bad. Um, that being said, if you'd like a slightly less bad place that you could spend your time and still talk and post memes and do things like that that are fun, um, you could join our Discord, uh, which is the Mark's Madness Discord. It is linked in our bio. If the link is not working, by all means, reach out to us uh, on DMs or on email for a link to it, and we'll get you one. That being said, this has been, again, Mark's Madness Pod. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye. Bye.